Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church Sermon of the Week. This week's message, by guest preacher Ann Schneider, and several members of our congregation, celebrates the gifts of women in the church, past, present, and future. First Presbyterian is located in downtown Columbia, Missouri. For more information about our congregation, visit our website, www.fpccolumbia.org. After I retired on April Fool's Day of 2016, I purchased a subscription to Ancestry.com. I was determined to make a more serious effort to put together my family tree. And so over the past several years, as a hobby, but one that kept me up late many nights, I've explored a lot of rabbit holes as I've traced my parents and my grandparents as far back as I could. And I've discovered it is a never-ending task. My little family came from large farm families in southern Indiana and Kentucky and Virginia. Some, some came from scrappy and probably poor Vermonters, folks who seemed to think that paying for an actual gravestone with a name inscribed in it was a waste of money. Some came from immigrants from Prussia, Bavaria, or Scotland. Some even came from the Mayflower. Most of my ancestors were just farmers. Very few became famous. Well, a ninth great-grandmother was hanged as a witch in Salem, and a cousin was that women's rights um, leader and pioneer, Susan B. Anthony. And a very, very remote and tangential ancestor was Abraham Lincoln. But overall, very ordinary people. They fought in wars. Some avoided doing so. They moved around a fair amount, more farmland, gold, or for whatever reason. Some died old, some died young. Some lost spouses, sometimes multiple spouses. Many lost children. Your family tree is probably as varied as mine, even if you've not yet discovered it. Because we all got here one way or another. And genealogists will tell you that we're all related to each other somewhere way back, six, a dozen, two dozen generations ago. Sometime in the past, we probably had a common ancestor, a common grandmother, if you will. This year's Bible study for Presbyterian women was entitled, What My Grandfathers Taught Me. Learning from the Women in Matthew's Genealogy of Jesus. So I would invite you to pick up a pew Bible, unless you brought your own today, and go ahead and open to the first chapter in the book of Matthew. You didn't know I was going to make you work. This is Matthew's account of the lineage or genealogy of Jesus. Have you read this before? Probably not out loud because you're probably cringing at the thought of trying to pronounce some of those names. And some of the people listed in that genealogy or lineage, their names appear nowhere else in the Bible. Others will be more familiar to you. But knowing where and from whom one came was important to the Jewish people. Matthew concludes this whole lineage 
saying in verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. This is Joseph's family tree. The family that Jesus was legally viewed as being part of under Jewish law. Now, both Mary and Joseph were descendants of King David. Joseph was David's son through Solomon, and Mary was was David's ancestor descendant (laughs) through, um, through his son Nathan. The Gospel of Luke offers a family tree listing the male ancestors between Nathan and Mary, if you've ever wondered why those names aren't all the same. But look at Joseph's family tree there in Matthew. Within that list of lineal ancestors, you find five women identified. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, although she's just called the wife of Uriah, and Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now, I should point out that these five women are figures in this drawing over here. You may have to come up after the service to take a closer look at it. But on the chancel, we have a piece of artwork called Jesse's Tree, and it includes the names from Matthew's genealogy. That particular drawing was created a couple years ago by uh, Meredith Wilson with the assistance of her sister Alice, and both of them attended my church in Jefferson City. Since last fall, the women in this church and in hundreds of Presbyterian churches across the country, discovered the deeper story of these five women across 42 generations, each of which obviously involved a woman. Only these five were named or otherwise referenced. But their naming is still significant in a culture that largely looked past the critical role of women. And it might make you wonder why they were actually called out. Just as everyone in your family tree had their own story, their own account of their life and their experiences and their contributions, each generational ancestor in this family tree for Jesus did as well. So during our Bible study, we explored the context of each of these women's existence, their background, their character, their faithful action, and their contribution in history, Um, in addition to the fact that they each bore a son. We also learned how theologians and others have for centuries often characterized these women in ways that perhaps maintained their marginalization or that continued to label them in ways that would discourage future generations of women from celebrating their legacy, or from trying to imitate their boldness in their actions. And we learned how significant their participation and presence was for the people of God. Who was wronged by her father-in-law, Judah. Tamar's story is found in the 38th chapter of Genesis, appearing right after Jacob's sons, including Judah, 
sold their brother Joseph to the merchant caravan headed to Egypt. Judah's first son married Tamar, but died before any child was born. Under the existing law of leveret marriage, Judah's second son was expected to marry Tamar also for the purpose of providing a child to carry on his dead brother's family. When he did not carry through with those responsibilities, he also died. But Judah did not want his third son to be involved with Tamar, so he tried to deceive her. Tamar's actions not only got her what she was entitled to, the birth of a son who would later be able to provide for her, but she also earned the admission by Judah that she was indeed more righteous than he had been. Tamar and Judah's union begot Perez, whose line then continued five more generations to Solomon, who married Rahab. We remember Rahab, a businesswoman who lived along the city wall of Jericho, and by the nature of her business, either a brothel or an inn that often was frequented by foreigners. She has been viewed as socially unacceptable. Her story is recounted in the second chapter of Joshua, part of which we've heard today. As Rahab saved the Israelite spies who were scouting out Jericho, she also negotiated for the protection of her own family. Her intelligence, strength of will, and presence of mind stand out as God's own people were filled with fear. For placing her faith in God, she and her dependents were saved. Rahab later married Solomon and became the mother of Boaz. We remember Ruth, a Moabite woman. Her story has a book of its own, the book of Ruth. As a widowed foreigner, Ruth's love and loyalty to her mother-in-law, Naomi, led to her faith in God. We remember how Ruth said to Naomi, Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Ruth's following Naomi ultimately led to her marriage to Boaz, the son of Rahab. Ruth and Boaz had a son named Obed, and he became the father of Jesse, who later became the father of David, who later became king. We remember Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. Uriah was a Hittite, a foreigner, but a loyal soldier of King David. Bathsheba's story is told in the 11th and 12th chapters of the Book of Solomon, part of which we've heard. Voiceless and powerless, Bathsheba was raped by King David, who had spied her from his roof. When David could not conceal the evidence of his misdeed by encouraging Uriah to visit his wife for marital relations, he caused Uriah to be killed in war, and then he married the widowed Bathsheba. 
Yet later, Bathsheba bore David, his son Solomon. And she was able to influence David and provide for Solomon's future reign as king. We remember Mary, the mother of Jesus. As a young woman, she was betrothed to Joseph, a descendant of King Solomon and King David and Bathsheba, some 25 generations earlier. Pregnant before her marriage, Mary faced complete disgrace, but she said yes to God, and she continued her faithful obedience even as she and Joseph escaped with Jesus as refugees, and even as she knew of the prophet's foretelling of his death. Mary followed God's direction throughout Jesus' ministry on earth, and she was faithful to the end. Each of these women had her own story, but a common thread is that they were women who made history happen by securing their own future and that of their family through faithful action. Each of them faced a bad situation in which their own life or their security or their future was at risk. Whether they were put into that bad situation by others or they deliberately stepped into it as their best option under the circumstances, they overcame the problem that they faced, and they were significant problems. When Judah had heard that the widow Tamar was pregnant, he hoped to be finally rid of her because the punishment for adultery was death. And Bathsheba would have met a similar situation had not her husband Uriah been killed and David married her. Rahab and her family would have suffered the fate of the other residents of Jericho, but for her assistance and quick bargaining. Ruth and Naomi faced starvation without a male family member to, to take care for them, which Ruth's faithful actions secured with Boaz. Mary would likely have been sent back to her parents in shame had Joseph not been visited by the angel. None of these women had any inherent power or authority at the beginning of their stories. They weren't queens or judges or members of wealthy family or holding any other high position in their community. They lacked security in a patriarchal society, and both socially and economically, they were in the margins. Several were even foreigners or Gentiles, and none of them were looking for adventure or to make a name for themselves. In many ways, they were pretty ordinary. Matthew seemed to make a point of including or at least calling attention to these women who were really outside the traditional power structure. But maybe this is less of a surprise when we consider that only Matthew mentioned the Magi, the wise men who came from the foreign land to the east to visit the baby Jesus, and only Matthew recounts the flight to Egypt when jo Jesus and Joseph and Mary all fled and became refugees, foreigners themselves. And Matthew's inclusion of Jesus' several foreign or different or otherwise marginalized grandmothers, even as he recounts Joseph's direct lineage from Abraham, perhaps that's not so surprising after all. But what impact might this heritage have had on Jesus 
Could stories of Jesus' grandmothers have been influential? Just imagine the stories that those grandmothers might have told their own children or their children's children and passed through the generations. What stories might Tamar have told her son Perez about telling the truth and living up to one's obligations? What stories might Rahab have told Boaz about being brave and looking out for the interests of your family and loved ones? What stories might Ruth have told Obed about taking care of the less fortunate ones, those who must glean the fields to find enough to eat and caring for family members? What stories might Bathsheba have told Solomon about not acting on impulse or taking advantage of others by virtue of your own power? What stories might Mary have told Jesus about the rich heritage of both her and Joseph's ancestors? Thinking back to your own heritage, what stories did you hear from your parents, from your aunts and uncles or grandparents or maybe further back in generations that led to you. The mothers and grandmothers of our own families helped shape our lives and our histories with their love for their family, their hard work, their faith in God, and their stories. Perhaps there were stories of their own childhood, things that their parents said or did, or other family lore that has been passed on to them. Indeed, our lives have been shaped by women and men we've never met and maybe never heard of, unless perhaps you're an Ancestry.com fanatic. Just consider for a moment that each of us has two biological parents, four biological grandparents, eight biological great-grandparents, 16 biological great-great-grandparents, 32 biological great-great-great-grandparents, and by the 10th generation back, we have over a 1,000 lineal ancestors. And by the 20th generation back, we pass a million. And by the 30th generation We've passed a billion direct lineal ancestors. Try it at home. I did the math. Our forebearers over the last 800, 900, or 1,000 years. And each of these ancestral families likely had multiple children, all with their own children and grandchildren and so forth. So the family tree that each of you are part of, each of us are part of, is tall and extremely wide, isn't it? When you look across this congregation, what do you suppose are the chances that you've got a distant cousin sitting here that you don't know yet? Geneticist Adam Rutherford has asserted that everyone with European ancestry is descended somehow from Emperor Charlemagne the first ruler of the Holy Roman Empire, which covered most of Western Europe in in 800 AD. Well, I haven't gone that far back in my family tree. But regardless, there is a connectedness 
There's a connectedness that may lie under the radar for most of us, and it may just be waiting to be discovered. And that is a beautiful thing. Or at least, it would be a beautiful thing if we looked at one another as part of our own family. If we really considered every man and woman we, we see as a brother or a sister, in that extended family, someone who might share a Thanksgiving dinner, someone who might be on your Christmas card list, someone who may have even heard a family story that you heard. Knowing our own connectedness to those past generations, what are we doing today to pass the legacy of those lives, those lives and experiences and contributions added to our own, onto our children and grandchildren? What stories do we share? And are we making time for that sharing? What values do we expose them to? And do they have an opportunity to witness? How might we influence our children and grandchildren to be upright and honest and useful? And are we living examples in our actions and our words? Are we faithful in our day-to-day activities? And are we sharing that faith with the future generation and the next? We have all received a legacy and an inheritance that's reflected in our own character and faith, but it comes with a string attached. We are expected to pass it forward We are to keep the story of God's faithful people alive and growing. Someday, maybe even now, we will be the grandparents who pass along that story. May it be so. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you were inspired by this message, please share it with your friends and consider partnering with First Presbyterian Church in our mission to feed the hungry, house the homeless, and share the good news of Jesus Christ. Go to our website, www.fpccolumbia.org, and click on the Give tab at the top of the page to make a financial donation. Peace be with you.